Listener Production. Hey, we would like to just warn listeners, in particular First Nations people, that this podcast may contain distressing content. We start today by acknowledging the lands and waters of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their ancestors past and elders present. I acknowledge that the First Nations across the continent have never ceded sovereignty and that the First Nations are the first lawmakers. Welcome. This is Black Matters, a podcast that is about First Nations matters and why they matter. I'm Teela Reid, First Nations advocate, lawyer, and proud Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman. And joining me, as always, is my old friend MC yeah, yeah, yeah. from the Hit Radio Network. It's always good to be back. It's always good to share this space with you. Best time of the week, and I'm gonna. Hi. I love this episode. I can't wait. If this is your first time joining us on Black Matters, and you're wondering who we are and why we spell it B L A K. Go back and listen to our podcast trailer. Now, over the past few weeks, the past month or so, it's safe to say that the entire nation has been caught up in Matilda's fever and they they have just done us all so damn proud, finishing fourth in the FIFA Women's World Cup. Just an outstanding achievement. Go the Tillies. It's been so good to see the support that everyday Australians have had for this team, including uh, Indigenous players like Kaya Simon, Mary Fowler, what a legend from PNG. So... We started thinking about the history between soccer and First Nations people. And if you want to learn more, it goes a long way back. And an expert on this matter is joining us on the podcast this week. Uh, He's a professor at the University of Newcastle, John Maynard. John Thursley, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it, mate. Yeah, it's a pleasure, buddy. Pleasure to be here. Now, we've got you on because you are the expert on this exact subject because you've written an entire book about just this, the history between First Nations people and soccer called the Aboriginal Soccer Tribe. I just need to get the obvious question out of the way because there could be some purists listening. Are we going to call it soccer or are we going to call it football? Uh, We'll go with soccer, but I mean, it's the the, the name they use these days is, is football. But in this country, I mean, Certainly from an Indigenous perspective, when you're talking football, you're talking rugby league or AFL. Mm-hmm. So I think it's probably for us, it's important to use the word soccer, which is why I used it in the book, The Aboriginal Soccer Tribe. So before we get on to the history of First Nations people and soccer, can, can we just spend a moment talking about the history, I guess, of sport in this country and the type of sport that was played before the colonisers arrived on the shores? We were a sporting nation. I mean, we were certainly recorded by early settlers, extremely fit, healthy specimens. There was one guy that uh, regarded us as something like the ancient Spartans in Greece, the absolute fitness fanatics. It was all about uh, keeping the body fit, and particularly for hunting and things like that. And we were a sporting nation long before the British got here. And with these recordings of certainly in Victoria and elsewhere of a form of football, uh, there's one game, of course, which has certainly been adopted by the AFL as an identifier as mongrel. But there were several different ball games. That's that's the reality. And in the in the soccer book, there's a 1865 artwork which depicts an Aboriginal boy with a round ball in 1865, looking all the world like Ronaldinho from Brazil. Um, with the ball balanced on his instep. And this particular game was what they call keepy-uppy today, um, particularly with the South Americans. It was an idea was to how many times you could hit the ball without letting it touch the ground. And that was a game of great skill. So that was that's certainly a form of football. And 
again, there's there's so many aspects of our sporting culture that brought groups together for celebration, for ceremonies, and also for sport. Having written the book and thinking about our nation and what we've just kind of been on this titters experience and real, I think, camaraderie and collectivism around cheering them on, what impact does having First Nations players on a national team like have on First Nations peoples, do you think, or being able to collectively be inspired by this group that we're really transforming not just the game, but I think conversations in our community? It's huge. It's a huge impact onto us and sport always has, you know, for us, because there were barriers for such a long time. There were colour bars denying us a, a game, if you like, and that was based in rugby league, AFL. Every sport in this country had barriers to prevent us taking part. Probably the only one that really didn't have a barrier was boxing. And, I mean, the, the percentage of Aboriginal boxing champions in this country outweighs percentage of the population, 3%. I think it's something like 15 to 20% of the Australian boxing champions have been Indigenous. Mm. But, of course, in the in the boxing ring, you could get killed. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was the reality why the doors were probably more open. That was a real fundamental problem for us. And the reality is over so many decades, we had great sporting men and women who were denied their opportunity of taking their place in these sporting games to re- represent their country and represent us as Aboriginal people. So there was, you know, there were people that come through, but there were so many barriers. The big hero for me in the 60s, of course, Lionel Rose. I kept this massive you know, scrapbook of Lionel. I kept every cutting of newspaper things. I listened to all his fights on the radio. And he came here after he'd won the world title to Newcastle with his book, Lionel Rose Australia. And I lined up in a queue to go in and get Lionel to autograph that book, which I've still got to this day. But that is the impact onto us because it really gives you a lift. It inspires you. As a, as a kid that grew up in the bush and played against a lot of teams that, that featured many First Nations players, I, there, there was always a town that I was terrified of playing because what a lot of people might not realise is some of the greatest natural-born athletes are First Nations people. They are quick, yeah. they are agile, yeah. and they don't run out of path. And whenever I used to see Walgett, Coming up on the draw, playing Walgett would just send a shiver down my spine. Uh, John, before we before we go back to the links between First Nations peoples and, and soccer in this country, can you sort of expand on those barriers that you mentioned and, and why so many people that probably would have gone on to be champion athletes in their given sport, why they weren't and how they were how they were held back and not given the opportunities that they should have been given? There was the state of play in this country. We were we were written out of it. That's the reality, you know. A lot of our people were, were confined on, on missions and reserves. I mean, where everyday decisions on any aspect of their life was taken away from them. And as I said, the sporting field, I mean, was a, a no-go zone in most cases for us. Prior to the late 60s and certainly the early 70s, you could count on two hands the numbers of top Aboriginal players had got through in the AFL or the NRL. The barriers were really significant. Wally MacArthur, a champion runner held the world record for a 19-year-old in 1951. He won the Australian trials in Tasmania before the Helsinki Games, but he wasn't selected to, for the Australian Olympic team. And one of the guys that he beat, Kevin Gosper, ran third in that race. 
these are the levels of barriers that our people face during those times. Tragedy of it. Yeah, I just was thinking about, as you were speaking, the impact of when our First Nations peoples really do cut through, uh, for yeah. example, Cathy Freeman, that's all etched in our uh, mind. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, that, absolutely. Stop the nation. She yeah. totally stopped the nation and, and she was the inspiration for the Tillies. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, she came and spoke to them, you know, in mm. the lead up to that. And uh, there was a similar thing with that game with Mary Fowler with that ball through, I mean, which has just absolutely lifted the house off. Here's a 20-year-old on the biggest stage of all in those in those games during that Women's World Cup. And I have to say, I will touch on too as far as soccer's concerned, some of the great players in other codes, Adam Goods was a soccer player. And it wasn't until mm. his family moved to Melbourne, he couldn't get a game of soccer that he took up AFL. Nathan Blacklock, one of the greatest rugby league wingers we've ever seen with St George and also the Kangaroos. Nathan was a soccer player. At Tinger, he used to hitchhike to get a game. <laughs> and then mm. he actually said to, said to me, it was a... The, the point was that hitchhiking all the time, he had to go back to rugby league because it was taking so much time to get to a game. We've had these players before, these great talents. I mean, I have to say, and Adam Good is a mad Manchester United supporter as well. For those that can't see uh, <laughs> Professor Maynard, he's not only wearing a Manchester United jersey, he's also got the cap on. He's gone the one or two attack and I like it. Can, can you talk about the links between First Nations people and soccer and, and how the two are intertwined? Yeah, sure. Soccer as a game was played here long before um, rugby league. Soccer clubs were formed in Australia in the late 1880s. They were formed at the same time as some of the great clubs in England, Tottenham and Liverpool and Everton. We had clubs up here in Newcastle, Adamstown, Rosebuds, Walls End, West Walls End. These clubs were formed by British miners in that particular time period Mm. and have the same length of time. And probably in that time period that turned into the 20th century, one of our greatest ever uh, players was a Ewan man from the South Coast, Bondi Neal, who came to the Coalfields to get work in the mines and was an outstanding goalkeeper. He's the first Aboriginal representative soccer player and was picked to play for the uh, Northern Coalfields in a game against Western Australia at um, Maitland Showground with over a 1,000 people there. And he was an extraordinary goalkeeper, won the Newcastle Grand Final at uh, Newcastle Showground and an absolutely brilliant player. Probably three standouts, um, which really should be mentioned, are three guys that were actually removed from their families and placed into the St. Francis home down in South Australia in the late 40s was Charlie Perkins, John Moriarty and Gordon Briscoe, one of hundreds of kids that were taken and placed into that institution. The interviews with John Moriarty and Gordon Briscoe um, and also Vince Copley and others that I did, they used to kick a tennis ball around on the cement in that um, home. A tennis ball was their soccer ball and that's what they played. John Moriarty said from sun up till sun down. Great skills were accumulated from playing Mm. with this tennis ball in confined spaces. And they eventually played a soccer game there was a, an under-19 representative team training on the ground next door to the home and all the Aboriginal boys were sitting on the fence watching them. And for whatever reason, one of the uh, managers or coaches for the under-19 team come over and approached one of the minders at the home and said, if you want to get these kids together in a team, they can have a game against the rep team. 
They played against them and they beat them 12 Smashed them. These were 14 and 15-year-olds. And I mean, and there are a lot of representatives from the major clubs in Adelaide there at that time. And Charlie Perkins, John Moriarty, Gordon Briscoe, Vince Copley, and a whole host of others were signed up immediately. Charlie Perkins, even to this day, is still revered in the Greek community in Sydney. You really hold mm. him on high because of his exploits on the soccer field, but also, you know, as a, a, a political activist, certainly for Aboriginal issues and, and many other issues. So, uh, you know, and John Moriarty was the first Aboriginal player selected to play for Australia. Gordon Briscoe also went to England and were signed by Preston North End, at that time a first division club in England. Gordon damaged his knee and uh, he'd only played A and B uh, reserve grade games before his knee was buggered and he, he had to come home. But they were three of the really top players that really came through in that period. This might be something that you can both answer because I think sport on any level, I'm assuming, has the same power and can do the same thing. Do we think not just soccer but sport in general can provide a vehicle for First Nations players to overcome, obviously, the social prejudices that we've spoken about and, and obstacles? Yes and no. Mm. Yes and no. We've looked at the last 30, 40 years, particularly with rugby league and AFL and boxing and other sports and the incredible, except even Cathy Freeman copped it as well. Remember, over carrying the Aboriginal flag yeah. at the Commonwealth Games. Our people break through and they win incredible acclaim, but it can quickly turn against them, as we saw with Adam Goods, and you couldn't have got a greater mm. sportsman in this country. And yet you can scratch the surface of this country and racism and prejudice and oppression and, you know, the turn back to the old white Australia policy days erupts. And, yeah. you know, it was tragic and sad to see these morons setting upon a player of such quality as Adam Goods. We've seen it with Latrell Mitchell as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you see it over and over again. Yet you have to say that the impact of our players across the last four and five decades have made a massive impact into wider Australia. I'm assuming the answer to this is that there is no difference because it doesn't really matter who you are, whether you're just an, uh, a regular First Nations people or literally a world champion athlete. Do you think racism changes when it plays on the sports field or does it become more pronounced because noise is made and we hear about it? I'm assuming it probably just happens on every level regardless of who you are and what sport you're playing. It happens on the street to our people every day of the bloody week. Mm. <laughs> to be on a sporting mm. field, that's, yeah. my, that's my outlook of it. I mean, it gives them the, at times with the sporting arena to magnify that, to expand it to a wider audience. But I copped it as a kid in the school ground. They all knew who my father was and what my background was. And you look at the colour of my skin, but they all knew and I was a target for that. So that impacts onto you and causes you to erupt mm. in response. I, I still live in hope this day and age that there is an opportunity in the future that we can all join hands and walk onto a future that is just and equitable for all. And, you know, say to non-Indigenous people, the greatest treasure this country possesses is a connection to Aboriginal people and 65,000 years of connection to this continent. That's the richest treasure the country possesses. And they've got an opportunity to share that. We're there providing that and willing to accept them into that space if they don't have the brains to see it. Yeah, and there's still so many blackfellas breaking through so many barriers on fields, yep. on courts. I 
remember even being a kid back out in Western New South Wales and these examples you've given are still very much kind of alive and rear their ugly heads at times. You know, I had a and I think what I loved about sport was the collective vision to achieve a goal and being part of that team. And I remember one teammate, and sometimes the racism and comments can come from within your own team. You know, yeah, it's not yeah, the opposition. Right. Um, where another non-Indigenous girl said to me, do you know how they make black babies to the whole team? And I was like, uh... And she looked at other members and was like, we just put them in the oven. And this is like, a kid, you know... A child. In my lifetime. And it's just like, yeah, so this right. is happening everywhere in schoolyards. And I think the strength we can take away from these conversations, though, is what First Nations players contribute to the national fabric of our sport and some of our greatest moments that we get to live and recollect now um, are a result of the impact of First Nations players. Uh, that's right. I think that's mm. a great way to look at what the Matildas have achieved, not just yeah. the recent World Cup, but going back over 15, 16, 17 years with Kaya Simon and Lydia Williams, Mm. And their teammates have backed them wholeheartedly in flying the Aboriginal flag, coming out in support of Aboriginal people on issues. And they've given a lot of media attention to that. You know, hats off to them and their teammates for the unconditional support they give to Aboriginal Australia and really showcased it to the world. You know, in that so, space. Yeah, so important. And we had Jess Skinner on our <laughs> podcast a couple of weeks ago who is an assistant coach of the Jillaroos at the top level of a rugby league and um, exactly what you were saying about the impact that these players can have as a coaching staff member. One of the things that really transformed the team as a collective was really honing in and having conversations off the field about Mm. Who are they representing when you yeah. represent Australia? Mm. And uh, I think we have a clip. Yeah, this of... is a little bit of that chat that we had with uh, with Jess Skinner. So I left the NRLW space and jumped into the NRL space uh, working for the business there. And what actually drew me across there was, uh, again, the real opportunity to create transformational change in the women's space but making sure uh, First Nations voices were heard along the way and perspectives were put in, into those strategies and those plans. And uh, one of those strategies was just the understanding that actually when you play for Australia, it's not mm. just the Australian flag that is the official flag you're representing. We actually as a nation have three official flags the others being the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag and the, uh, yeah, and the Torres Strait Islander flag, I should say. So it's amazing how sport can be a catalyst for change. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's, with that World Cup, the recent Women's World Cup, I would sit on the National Indigenous Advisory Group to Football Australia now. Karen Menzies is on there as well, the oh, first yeah. Indigenous Matilda. A number of the things that were put up by you know, NIAG, which were adopted by FIFA eventually, because FIFA won't let any flags be flown other than mm. the countries themselves. But we insisted that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Maori flags were flown, and that was, that was one. There was also the, the signposting of the events areas. 
whether it was Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne yeah, or in I New really Zealand. Yeah, I really noticed that actually. The, right yeah, the yeah. names, the names were there. You know, so that was a very important thing. And the really rich welcomes to country for those games. I mean, that were there. But it's, it wasn't just a token thing. But I will say, you know, and I'm really pushing for this with Football Australia, that there is funding and support provided for the development of the game at grassroots Indigenous levels. That's the really important catalyst that has to flow out of this World Cup. We want to provide opportunities for our kids to play this incredible world game, you know, and that has to be taken up. In terms of that connection between what is needed and what's being committed to, I feel like in between like watching FIFA and all of social media and our young kids, it wasn't just young girls who they've inspired. Mm. I remember walking past pubs even in inner city, grown men cheering on women's teams and also then, you know, having a look on Instagram and little black, white kids, boys cheering, go the Tillies, I want to be a Tilly. I just think, how can you describe that impact in words? Yeah, it's very hard to do, but I think it's Mm. it's always been, soccer's always been the sleeping giant. And in reality, it's really had the hell frightened out of rugby league and AFL if it ever got a toehold and could ever grab the attention because rugby league, in all honesty, can't come out of New South Wales and Queensland. That's the only place that it can mm. really grow. Otherwise, around the world, it's either a second or third-rate game. AFL goes nowhere outside of Australia. This game, as it's shown with this World Cup, is the massive global game which generates this incredible passion and support. You saw it on the streets in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Newcastle. Yeah. It is just huge. And that sort of thing is suddenly unleashed and people think, whoa, I didn't realise. But it's, again, this is the Women's World Cup. Yep. But that is, the, that is the level of what these girls achieved. Yeah. It's not just what they achieved in d- demands for gender equality and better recognition for you know, women's sport. You know, they've really captured the imagination of the world. But that's what that game does. I remember um, I read a quote that the 1978 World Cup final was played in South America between Argentina and Holland. And what that said was one-third of the world's entire population viewed that game. That's how big that game is. (laughs) One-third of the entire world population viewing one game, the 1978 World Cup final. And it's grown since. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they, they don't call it the world game for nothing. And, yeah. and, and hopefully what the Matildas have, have been able to achieve is a, a first big step for certainly soccer in this country. And we can't wait for the Tillies to win the World Cup and to see yeah. many more First Nations players on that global stage putting that goal yeah. through the back of the net. Now, before we, before we let you go, Professor yeah. Maynard, we like to finish every episode with a First Nations word because we believe here at Black Matters that language matters as well. And we're hoping that eventually these are words that get used in everyday conversations between black, white, everyone. So we believe you've got a word for us this week, mate. Yeah, I'm going to give you two words. So there you go. I'll take the opportunity to have two words. It's a treat words. for our yeah, listeners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as a Warramai man from the Port Stephens region, which I must say, is the centre of the universe. I mean, that's where everything starts and ends. I mean, all the rest of you, yeah. But Dungay is a, um, as a historian, Dungay is a Warramai word for long time ago. 
And I will add to that that the Awabakal word, where I'm sitting today is in Awabakal country in Newcastle. They had a word, Yuriki, which is a long time ago, since past. Both of those words are history. Our people had a concept of history for thousands of years. Our people carried oral memories of erupting uh, volcanoes, giant floods, giant fires, uh, rising sea levels, and we had heroes and heroines throughout our our history for thousands of years. And that was recorded oral memory history. Well, if you want to read more about the history, as you've just said, between soccer in this country and First Nations people, the book, it's out, Aboriginal Soccer Tribe, Professor John Maynard. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure to be here, guys. Yeah, and I can't wait to have you back because I know that you are such a treasure to us as First Nations peoples and you do tell stories and history, Dungay, in such a unique way and there is so much more, I reckon, that we have to yarn about. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, Pleasure, Taylor. Pleasure. And don't forget, there's heaps more episodes of Black Matters for you to check out. Why we do acknowledgements of country, which you would have seen. Welcome to countries before the beginning of the Matildas and, and games at the Women's World Cup. The history of treaty and voice in this country. And conversations with an elder. Massive back catalogue for you to check out. And if you like listening to Black Matters, tell your mates, tell your colleagues, tell your family, tell everyone. Get us a couple more listens. We'd love it. And you'd like to support Australia's diverse and contemporary First Nations music. Head over to Indigenous. It's the brand new DAB station on the Listener app. Teela, as always, it's a bloody pleasure. I'll talk to you next week. So good. Yalu. Yeah,